Hello, Mary Richards. Hello, Lizzie Lassiter. Welcome to Somatic Self-Care, the Somatic Self-Care podcast. Would you please start us out with a brief meditation just to ground ourselves before we begin? Okay, so adjust your body position to improve your comfort by at least 10%. And I'd like you to inhale the breath through the nose and exhale through the nose. Inhale through the nose, exhale through the nose. Inhale and place one hand low on the belly. Inhale again and place the other hand on the chest. And now breathe into your hands and feel the connection between them. Feel the warmth of the inner body. And with the voice of the heart, say to yourself, I am safe. I am powerful. I am present. I am safe. I am powerful. I am present. And with your next inhalation, bring your hands to prayerful mudra at the heart center and rub the hands together vigorously, generate heat between the hands. Now, if you're wearing glasses, you may need to pause for a moment and slip your glasses off, but rub your hands together, generating friction heat and when they're warmed to your preference, place the cupped hands lightly over the eyes and feel the warmth of the hands penetrating through the eyeballs, through the optic nerves into the deep center of the brain. And then let your hands slide gently from your face. Open your eyes and blink several times. and come fully back into the room. Thank you. Oh, that was lovely. We're continuing with our conversations about the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. And we left off at chapter six, which is the end of part two. Mary and I have decided to skip over for the purposes of this series of conversations to skip over parts three and four, which are titled The Minds of Children and the Imprint of Trauma. Of course, if you're drawn to them, please read those chapters. They're just really beyond the scope of our work as yoga teachers and somatic self-care practitioners. Anything else to say about that jump, Mary? Uh, Yeah, you know, there's definitely value in reading those sections. Just know that, 
they can be really provocative. And if you have experienced um, uh, traumas related to childhood and the like, please consider reaching out to a certified, um, you know, mental health professional for support because um, you, do, you, you are worthy of care and love and, and you may not have been loved and cared for in the way that you needed when you were younger. And now is just another opportunity to meet that need uh, differently for yourself. Mm. Yes. So we're moving now to part five, which is called paths to recovery. And today focusing on chapter 13, healing from trauma, owning yourself. I'd like to start with a quote, Mary, that leads me into my first question. As I flip the pages back here, healing from trauma, owning yourself. Here, Dr. Vanderkolk writes, trauma is much more than a story about something that happened long ago. The emotions and physical sensations that were imprinted during the trauma are experienced not as memories, but as disruptive physical reactions in the present. Mm -hmm. what, can we, what can we take from that as a community of physical practitioners the people listening to this are at least you know at, I always say the audience at least owns a yoga mat maybe many of us teach yoga so what does that mean what what does that tell us this idea that trauma is actually embedded in the body it is a in my opinion a modern reiteration of you know ancient yoga texts that date back, you know, from the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali to the Hatha Yoga Pradipika and things like that, which basically operates, you know, Hatha Yoga, um, the principle behind asana is that we actually can't achieve enlightenment and spiritual liberation if there's pain and suffering in the body which is why most of us start asana you know start yoga with asana practice on the mat and Bessel van der Kolk really just hits that nail on the head once again because you know tr we've discussed in previous um, chats that all trauma is preverbal so it's not like you can tell a coherent narrative about trauma because of its nature and so the body, the body tells a narrative through pain, tension, uh, neuromuscular disorganization, issues with coordination and movement patterning. And asana has, in my opinion, in my reading of various practice texts, Asana has always been designed to alleviate those disruptions because those disruptions keep us from ourselves. Mm, I love that as a kind of viewpoint. In my work with you and through reading this book, I have become fascinated with the word interoception. I'd say that's my <laughs> new 
<laughs> That's my new word that I use every time I teach asana. <laughs> he writes, uh, Dr. Vanderkolk writes, the only way we can consciously access the emotional brain is through self-awareness, i.e. by activating the medial prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that notices what is going on inside of us and thus allows us to feel what we are feeling. The technical term for this is interoception, which is Latin for looking inside. Can you talk a little bit about interoception and why it is so important? Oh, you mean Pratyahara? <laughs> no, it, like, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because interoception is pratyahara. Pratyahara isn't a withdrawal from the world around us. It's drawing our senses, consolidating our senses to the space within us. And that's what interoception is, because the reality is if we're not paying attention to how we feel, we're lying to ourselves. Brene Brown talks about this a lot, actually. And, um, and I say this all the time as well, you know, we, we think we're cognitive beings, but we're emotional beings. Everything about our neurobiology is most of what most of our neurobiology, I don't like to use absolutist terms really, but most of our neurobiology is oriented toward emotion emotional integration, emotional regulation, emotional processing. And it's that those, it's the emotions that inform our thinking. And so to really connect to how we feel, we're not gonna find the answers in our prefrontal cortex or our hippocampus. We're not gonna find the answers in our memories and the narratives we tell ourselves. We're gonna find our light by going into the dark recesses of the body and noticing where we have discomfort, where an emotion lives within us, where when we think of a memory, a disturbing memory, where do we feel it in our bodies? Because the more aware we become, the more fluent we become in mapping our emotional experience in the context of our physical experience, because everything happens in our bodies, that's how we become more attuned to ourselves, how we become more cognitive, cognitively accurate. And so if we want to change how we feel, we first have to feel the feeling itself and where it lives within our physicality and how that physicality then plays out in our neurology. Yeah, that, there's a striking fact in this chapter that I kept rereading and underlining, and it's that, quote, some 80% of the fibers of the vagus nerve, which connects the brain with many internal organs, are afferent. That is, they run from the body into the brain. This means that we can directly train our arousal systems by the way we breathe, chant, and move. Mm -hmm. And I... I just find it so fascinating that he, you know, in, the, in what I just read, those two sentences, he is connecting both the scientific understanding of the vagus nerve and these nerve tracks with these, what we would consider very 
old techniques of human regulation, of regulating our nervous systems, breathing, chanting, and moving. I mean, we've been dancing around the fire back into time. It's one of, it's a, oop, toddlers at the door. What do you, how do you see that, Mary, that fact about 80% being afferent? Yeah, this isn't surprising. Again, this is science catching up to our live, to our reality. You know, we, again, we are, we are, our architecture, our neurological architecture is uh, designed for relationship. So of course, the wanderer, the vagus nerve, uh, which affects our facial expressions, the tone and rhythm of our voice, uh, the, the, the pace and rhythm of our breath and our heart rate, how, how our small intestine, uh, how our peristaltic actions in the GI tract are working. It makes so much sense to me because we are basically walking mirrors. Mm, exactly. And what he writes about in this chapter is the transitory nature of emotions. That's something I continue to learn in my middle age that how I'm feeling right now is not a static state, um, whether I'm feeling overwhelmed or angry or frustrated or exhausted, whatever the feeling tone is. And interestingly, Dr. Vanderkolk points out that mindfulness as a tool puts us in touch with, quote, the transitory nature of our feelings and perceptions. When we pay focused attention to our bodily sensations, we can recognize the ebb and flow of our emotions and with that increase our control over them. I think that's such an elegant definition. I love what he's doing in linking the science side through you know, breathing, chanting, movement in, in, through to mindfulness. What does that make you think about this idea of the transitory nature? You know, it's a relief. Okay. <laughs> because especially when we're talking about trauma, like one of the, how do you differentiate a really unpleasant experience from a traumatic one? Well, it's how the experience affects the nervous system function you know, how we process, how we experience what's happening to us, how we process it. And so one of the things that's most helpful in dealing with trauma is by focusing on breath and body sensations, and then also correlating physical sensations with emotions, with our feeling state it really emphasizes to us in a factual way, because we're feeling it right here, right now. We feel the vagaries, the shifts, the uh, chameleon-like nature of our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions. And that's profoundly helpful to uh, folks who are wrestling with trauma, with post-traumatic stress and things like that is because it reminds us that the trauma is not happening right now, that what we're feeling right now is, is exactly that, their feelings. Uh, 
What's happened has happened. It's over, but we're, we're having these feelings and they're not going to last forever. Right. But see, to get rid of that, to, not to get rid of them, but to, but to move, to put them in that context of this is temporary and these feelings of helplessness, of fear, of panic, uh, they will dissipate if we pay attention to them. Because if we deny them, they will keep knocking on the door of our attention until we invite them into our present awareness so that they can burn themselves out. So the more we deny our feelings, the more pressure we're putting on ourselves and the more we're disassociating from our ability to, to let things go. I love that. And I love seeing our yoga practices as a container for real-time feeling what's going on sensation-wise, emotion-wise body-wise. I mean, this is in the, this is the intention, you know, okay. If we look at the yoga sutras of Patanjali, okay. So sutra one, we know is Bhakta yoga Anushasanam, you know, and now an explication of yoga begins, right? And now, Atta, and now. That's how the yoga sutra itself begins. And now, welcome to the present moment. And then we move on to yoga chittas vrittis narodhaha. Yoga is the cessation of the modulations of the mind. Right off the bat. See, it's not the, the cessation of the modulations of the mind so that we become thoughtless, blank, vistas of awareness, so to speak, you know, no, it's the cessation of these modulations that keep repeating themselves because we haven't in, we haven't interacted with them. We haven't actually looked at them and said, are you true, accurate, helpful, uh, you know, honest, etc." So yoga in, from the beginning, has been about welcoming more of ourselves into our awareness so that we can let it go. He also says in this chapter, safety and terror are incompatible, meaning that those two nervous system states cannot exist at the same time in our body, safety and terror. There's also an idea I've heard before, probably from mom, that anxiety and relaxation cannot exist in the body at the same time. So in thinking about restorative yoga or trauma-informed yoga teaching, Mary, what are the things that you do, the techniques, the strategies, the mental frameworks that you have when you teach to try to create an environment of safety for your students? I, the, the first thing I do in any teaching dynamic, that even, you know, when we started this conversation, I, my invitation was to ground, to become centered in our sensations, in our breath right now in this present moment, because trauma, those emotions live in the past and the future and see, well, we obviously can't change what has happened and we don't know what will happen. So to help us um, 
feel safe, to co-create conditions that we perceive as safe, I begin with grounding in physical presence right here, right now. Yeah, yeah. I also do things like asking before I touch anyone at mm -hmm. every time I touch them. Um, I think that, for example, it's something I learned from mom. It's such a great, it's not just for the person that I'm asking if I may touch, but it signals to everyone who's there that I'm <laughs> going to extend that same courtesy to them. So yeah. that if their eyes are covered in a restorative pose, for example, and they're giving them per self permission to let go more deeply, they don't think I'm going to come by and you know, touch their head, their feet, their yeah. heart. Push their shoulders down into the floor and things <laughs> like that. Yeah, no, not only do I ask, not only do I ask for consent, I explicitly share with the person how I would like to touch them, where I would like to touch them, why I would like to touch them. So let's say we're in downward facing dog and I, and I say to the person, cause they're in downward facing dog, right? So I, they may only see my feet and I would, I'll come and come up and I'd say, I would like to place my hands on your shoulder blades. Uh, cause I want you, I, I'd like to invite you to breathe into your shoulder blades through, through my hands. I'd like you to guide guide you into that. Uh, may I do, may I touch you in that way? And the person's like, yeah, thanks. You know, because by telling people what, what you, what you'd like to do and what your intention is, you're not imposing your power over them. You're inviting them to share power with you. And that is one of the most important things we can do as yoga teachers, especially when we're working with people in a restorative context or a pranayama context. And if we know that we are explicitly working with people who are in trauma-informed yoga class, we have to cultivate conditions for agency. Absolutely. That's what I was thinking of bringing up as you were speaking is that when I ask, may I touch you? It's almost like I think it's valuable if the student says yes, and it's valuable if the student says no, because if they say no, it's giving them a great chance to practice making a boundary. And I always receive that super softly and just say like, okay, no, you know, no humiliation, no peer pressure, no coercion. It's like, no, that's your, I'm so glad that you had the opportunity and a, almost a playful place where someone's really asking and you're able to step into that power over your body because you know as you say I mean, a trauma-informed yoga class I assume any yoga class I'm teaching if there's 10 people 20 people 30 people there I'm assuming that there are many people who have experienced trauma oh yeah yeah exactly yeah exactly so let's just be let you know right off the bat let's uh, let's operate from profoundly humane democratic principles of mutuality, cooperation, and respect. Amen. The last point I wanted to bring up from this chapter, unless you had anything else, Mary, to add, is um, this quote where 
Dr. Vanderkolk says, being traumatized is not just an issue of being stuck in the past. It is just as much a problem of not being fully alive in the present. Mm. So as yoga practitioners, yoga teachers, in some ways, that's our metier. That's what we're encouraging, offering, sharing, teaching, practicing is uh, a glimpse of being in the present or, or stepping towards the present. So um, thinking of that, that, that so many of us who've had trauma experiences are caught in the past and, and unable to fully inhabit the present. What can we do? What are, what are your practices, your daily practices for encouraging yourself, especially when you're feeling triggered? How do you encourage yourself to come back into the present? I, um, bear with me for a moment. Taking care of myself right now. Because trauma, I do live with trauma. And I've been in a, in a trauma state for over a week now. And so I've been using a lot of these practices. And um, one of the most helpful things for me, because you cognitively, when you're, when you're triggered, you know that the trauma is not happening again but that doesn't matter. The thinking brain doesn't matter because your nervous system and your uh, emotional perception systems have been turned on in such a way that your thinking brain can't be heard. And so it's the, the, the way that you can unload that sympathetic nervous system response and move in the direction of equanimity and calm is to, to actually look around, look to the left, look to the right, look to the center, you know, look in front of you and name the things that you see. For instance, right now I'm looking to my left and I see uh, photos from when I went to trapeze school with my girlfriends. And I see my headstander and my Iyengar yoga chair and my desk lamp and my, my vase of pens and goniometers, which I use to measure range of motion. And then when I look to my right, I see my, my meditation chair and my weight stack and my box of journals. And so this is what I do for myself. I root myself in the present. And sometimes focusing on the sensations of the breath when you're in a state of, when you're in a triggered state isn't actually possible. It's because you might be so activated that you actually cannot catch your breath. And so by looking around you and pausing and naming five things that you see to your right, to your left, in front of you, even looking behind you, that will, that will situate you in the present moment. And I, I rely on that a lot. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that technique with us and your honest open heart 
that you have been heal in a state of healing for the past week. We so appreciate you being here with us, Mary. Any thing you want to share before we close? I would say that, you know, emotions can be scary, you know, especially when you're triggered and you're having flashbacks and, um, sympathetic nervous system arousal that is really evocative of the trauma experience itself. And what I think it's important to tell ourselves as often as we can is that feelings, feelings of helplessness, for instance, don't mean that you're helpless. Feelings don't mean that your reality is one of danger, okay? They're feelings, feel them. Because the more we feel into them, the more accurately able we are to respond to our present situation. Thank you. Where can we find you on the internet, Mary Richards? You can find me across the board at yogawithmaryrichards.com. Yes. And I'm at lizzie.yoga, L-I-Z-Z-I-E.yoga. Please sign up for my free newsletter, Rest with Lizzie Lassiter. Lots of love, Mary. Right back at you, Lizzie. <laughs>